0: Please open your Bibles at this time to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, wow, life has been pretty shaken up over the last six weeks or so. And here at the church, things have been a little different than I anticipated. And when I initially scheduled these things, I was planning to preach all through December in First Timothy. Uh, I wasn't expecting to take a detour into Luke, but the Lord, of course, had that planned. I'm confident that He anticipated and even purposed those things together. And uh, it was his intention that we were going to be there for a time, and I'm just as confident that he's going to lead us forward as we make our way now through the rest of the book of 1 Timothy, which I hope to uh, conclude around May. Our main focus today is going to be on verses 1 through 8 in chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, please follow along as I read now from God's holy word. In fact, I know that you've all just gotten comfortable, and I also know that we rarely do this, but... Being that this is our first Sunday of the year, and as an act of humility, I would ask that we stand at this time in reverent awe of what the Lord has to say here in His Word. So if you're able, let's stand once again as we read from God's Word. He writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. As you can see, the main focus of our text is that we would be a praying people, so let's do that right now. Let's go before the Father and ask Him to bless our time together in the Word. Our Father in heaven, we ask that today as we stand here under the reading of your Word, that by your Holy Spirit you would give us ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and that you would raise us up in due time. We pray, God, that you would indeed reveal to us your sovereignty in all things so that we might not try to do all that we can on our own apart from you, but that we would acknowledge we can do nothing apart from you. Without you, we can accomplish nothing of significance or value or eternal lasting effect. So, God, I pray that today you would strengthen our conviction to pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. The point that is being made in this passage can obviously be boiled down into one single word, a simple command. Pray. But he doesn't just say that. Paul digs into this argument, and what we want to do today is we want to focus in on exactly what he is telling us about prayer. All of these things that he mentions surrounding the command to pray are presented to us for a reason. God desires in his word to give us information about what prayer is, why we do it, and how it takes effect. So what we want to do today is we want to consider a few things from this passage about prayer. Our time this morning is going to be framed by the following five points that Paul is making. The lack of prayer the scope of prayer, the hope of prayer, the mediator of prayer, and the call to prayer. If you like taking notes, don't worry. We'll come back through each one of those in time. Let's begin with the one that is most inferred from the text. That is the first one, the lack of prayer. Now, admittedly, there is an element of imperfect subjectivity when it comes to Timothy and the church at Ephesus and their prayer lives. In other words, it is possible that they were prolific prayer warriors on the Uh, in their church, that they were some of the greatest prayers in the world. However, it's often true that the reason Paul chooses to focus on something is because he sees a specific need for that in their church. There needs to be change. And when he simply encourages activity that he already sees in the life of the church, he usually makes some kind of an acknowledgement that they should carry on and continue in faithful obedience. But he does not do that. He does not say, wow, you guys are really good at praying, just keep it up. Instead, he tells them to pray. Oftentimes, when people are already good at something, he tells them they're already good at it. One example would be Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, when he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, in this command, you will see that he includes both the command and the commendation. Look, you already obey really well when I'm there. Now, just keep doing that while I'm gone. Yet, in this text today, Paul does not commend the people for their masterful prayer lives. He does not make note of their radical dedication to either private or corporate prayer, Instead, he seems to pinpoint the lack of prayer as some kind of a substantial issue leading into other problems in the church. Later in the book of 1 Timothy, we're going to see that in this church, heresy and greed and gossip and disunity have been not only permitted, but cultivated within the congregation. And one of the best protections that we have against these kinds of invasive wickedness in the congregation is that we would be dedicated to prayer. Parents of young children, have you ever given your child something expensive or something that was sentimental to you in some way, and you gave it to them in hopes that they're going to take care of it, and they're going to guard it, and they're going to love it and treasure it, and then the next day you find it outside in the rain? Has that ever happened to you? Well, the sad reality is that prayer is treated like that by most of us. It is one of the most beautiful treasures that Christ has given to us. He has given us opportunity to communicate with the Father. And what do we do with this treasure? We leave it behind. We prioritize it less than anything else in our lives. We we do not consider it highly. In fact, you can measure this very easily in the life of the congregation. Very simply, when we put together events or gatherings or fellowships or meals or Wednesday night worships or things in the parking lot, whatever we do all year, the things that are always, always the most poorly attended are prayer gatherings. Without fail, they are always the least attended events. And why is that? Now, what I could do right now is I could spend the next 20 minutes excoriating all of us and highlighting our innumerable failures in our prayer lives and just basically making you feel guilty for being bad at this thing we call prayer. But that's not my goal, to bring you to guilt. And that's not Paul's goal either. He doesn't take a lot of time telling them all of the ways that they have failed, and I won't do that either. I simply want to do what Paul does and show you a better way. This is the great thing about the law of Christ. His commands are never burdensome. He actually commands that you do things that are good for you. Let's simply remind ourselves of what prayer is. Just Pause for a moment. Consider three aspects of what prayer is. First of all, prayer is communication with God. Full stop. That should be enough. That should be enough to thrill your heart forever. Consider what that is. The very fact that you, a sinner, have an audience with the God of the universe, that's shocking. I mean, you and I, we couldn't even get an audience with the mayor of New York City or with the president of our country or, or anyone that's famous. We, we couldn't do that. Why not? Because we have no standing. And even if we did, so what? Comparatively, God is God. And yet, he delights in our conversation. He welcomes us into his presence, and he enjoys you being there. That's more than could ever be hoped for. That's what prayer is. Secondly, prayer is God's way of bringing you into his mission. Now, you want to put on your thinking cap here for a moment. This is an important thing to understand. God does not need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. He could do all that he does apart from us. Yet, God delights in using us. And God delights in bringing us into his mission. And one of the ways that he has chosen to do that is through prayer. He doesn't have any job openings in heaven with your particular skills. Yet, in glory's mystery, God, before time began, prepared events to take place in which you would pray and He would answer. Is that not shocking? That God would allow us to request things of Him that affect the timeline in which he will eventually bring all things to conclusion. If God controls the end, he must also control the means. And part of that is prayer. God has planned that you would pray and what you would pray and how he would answer each one of those prayers in such a way that every time you pray, it should grow your faith in him and that it would allow you to take part in his grand work in the universe. So why would we eliminate ourselves from the opportunity to affect this world and to affect this life through our prayers? Thirdly, corporate prayer is the lifeblood of a healthy church. The best place to read about the development and the growth of the church is in the book of Acts. In that book, we see the church go from a group of people who were huddling together in the upper room to being something that was a force across all of the ancient world. And what was going on in that place is every time we see the church gathered, they were gathered in prayer. What you're going to find, the most reported, commonly reported event in the church is that they were praying together. Someone gets arrested, what do they do? They gather to pray. Someone gets killed, what do they do? They gather to pray. Someone gets saved, what do they do? They gather to pray. Someone gets released from prison, what do they do? They gather to pray. Someone is being persecuted, they gather to pray. Persecution ends, they gather to pray. In any and all circumstances, what do we see the church doing that caused them to be strong in the Lord They were a church that prayed together. So to apply this very first point today, I want you to genuinely take stock of your prayer life. Just ask humbly of the Lord, have I failed to treasure this gift that you've given me? Have I failed to act as I should as a person who consistently and faithfully does exactly what Rob spoke of this morning and cast my cares upon you? The second thing that we're going to focus on today from this text is the scope of prayer. Now, Paul commands Timothy and the church at Ephesus to pray, but part of his goal in this is to extend the blast radius of their prayers. Now, we're not merely to aim our prayers at those that we love or those that we agree with or even those just within the church. Our prayers are to extend to even those who are least likely to, that we are least likely to love or to trust. Consider the exact wording. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings Be made for all people. Here we have to pause and consider a very important question about common vocabulary. And the question here is what does the word all mean? And the answer is that often in Greek as well as in English, it is meant to mean every single thing in that category without exception. It's like saying, Dan Herman ate all of the jelly beans, they are completely gone. He has consumed every last one of them. In this case, all means every single one without exception. Other times, the word all is meant to say something of a different type. It is to say every kind of something without distinction. For example, Dan Herman eats all jelly beans. In this case, it does not mean that he has eaten every single one of them. It means that he happens to delight in consuming every single flavor of jelly bean. He doesn't distinguish between the bubblegum flavor and the black licorice flavor. He does not show favorites between the peanut butter and jelly flavor or the Tabasco flavor. Dan eats all jelly beans. So in our text today, Paul is going to widen the scope of our prayer radius by explaining that God wants us to pray for all people not without exception but without distinction. I know that with certainty God is not calling you to pray for every single person without exception because if you were to do this, then you would never have time to do anything else. In fact, if you were to spend one minute in prayer for every single person who is alive right now, it would take you more than 15,000 years to complete that prayer, and that's without any rest or stoppages. That would tick higher every single time a baby is born. In other words, God is telling you to pray for all kinds of people, every type of person. And to highlight that point, Paul selects the very last group of people that we naturally tend to or desire to pray for. He speaks about politicians. He says, We are to pray for kings and for those in high position. Now, most likely, there are politicians that you don't like. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Right? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I had to guess, I would assume there are faces that are flashing in your mind's eye right now of people that you don't like. And I want you to hold that image in your mind for a moment. Normally, I would tell you to do the opposite. Just forget that for now. Hold that person in your mind for now. That politician that just gets under your skin. Keep it there in the center of your focus for a moment. Is he or she bad? Well... Is he or she this bad? Has that person in your mind's eye sought to kill Christians? Has this person personally destroyed the homes and livelihoods of over 2 million people and then blamed it on the church? Has this person in your mind's eye arrested prominent pastors and had them executed? Or has he or she celebrated their dinner parties by having Christians put in bird cages covered in tar and then lit on fire for the pleasure of watching them slowly and agonizingly die? Probably not that bad. My guess is your answer would be, no, the person in my mind's eye has not done those types of things. Of course, here I'm referring to Nero. Nero was likely the person that was running the empire when Paul first penned this letter to Timothy. And by asking Timothy and the people at Ephesus to pray, he was commanding them that they lift the name of Nero before the father and ask that God would change that man's heart. Arguing from the greater to the lesser then, If they were to pray for evil rulers like that, do you not think the person in your mind should be prayed for? Or are they outside the scope of God's commitment of prayer? We are to pray for all people. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. All kinds of prayer should be made from these types of men and women in leadership. So practically speaking, when you feel like complaining about a politician or typing about them on Facebook or Twitter, instead, drop to your knees and pray. When you feel the frustration welling up in your heart as you watch the news, click, turn it off, drop to your knees, and pray. Stop being afraid of the situation. Stop being angry at the situation. Stop being bitter at the situation. Pray. Pray that God would turn the hearts of these people to trust in Him. The greatest healing factor in somebody's approach to governance is going to be whether or not they humble themselves before God. Pray that they would. Pray that God would allow our nation to operate within the bounds of truth and justice. Pray that God would work in those in power to end abortion. Pray that God would allow leaders to care about religious liberty and to, those who actually do to be placed in office. But it would be a very small thing to simply focus in on politicians here. The point that Paul is making is that nobody is outside of the target of prayer. That's why he uses this extreme example of politicians. So the question here for you is, there's there somebody that you have stopped praying for? Somebody that you've given up on? Or maybe you've just decided they're never going to turn from their sin, they're never going to repent, they're never going to trust in Jesus, why bother praying anymore? Don't stop praying for them. Here we read that we are to pray for all people without distinction. Maybe there's somebody that you've never prayed for at all. Maybe they just don't look like a candidate for salvation to you. Or maybe they act in such a vile manner that you can't even conceive of them bending the knee to Jesus. But you know what? To be honest, most of the time, those are not the types of people that I see people giving up on prayer. More likely, you simply personally dislike that person. And it's hard for you to pray for them. It hurts your pride to go before the Father and ask for this person you dislike greatly and pray that God would work in their heart and in their life. Now, in all of these cases, a failure to pray for such people is both a lack of faith and an act of willful disobedience. The scope of our prayers is to be for all kinds of people. The third thing we want to see here from the text is the hope of prayer. Why is it that we should offer these prayers? What is the motive that Paul presents to us? First, he tells us that we should pray so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And a second reason that he gives is listed in verses 3 and 4. He says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So reason number one, so that the church might experience a peaceful and quiet existence as we seek to live godly lives but reason number two because god might actually answer our prayers for these people and save them those are two forms of hope that are laid before us in this passage today that is part of why we pray now in order to best illustrate this with you let me just share a true story that occurred in the early 1500s there was a man named william Tyndale. many of you have probably heard his name He dedicated his life to translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into the English language. And he was predominantly influenced by a man named John Wycliffe. Now, at that time, it was illegal to translate the Bible into the common language of the people. The Roman Catholic Church was so adamantly opposed to people having the Bible in their own language that they would kill anyone who worked on those translations. The one that I mentioned before who had famously begun this work was John Wycliffe, and when Wycliffe was already dead for 43 years, the church was so aggressively angry at him for starting the the wheels turning on this translation process that they actually dug up his body, burned his bones, and then scattered the ashes into the river. See, the Roman Catholic Church, just as it is now, is very opposed to people actually reading and knowing their Bibles. Yet, even though this was the culture and society that Tyndale grew up in, he was committed, and he persevered, and he translated the Bible into English. In fact, he translated so incredibly well that when the King James Version was translated nearly 100 years after his translation was complete, over 90% of it is the exact wording of William Tyndale if you have memorized a verse in the King James Version, it is likely you have read and memorized the exact writing of William Tyndale, meaning that this man is the primary worker on the translation of the Bible that still to this day is the most widely printed, widely read, and widely memorized document in history. This man was incredible. And what did it get him for his ministry of making the Bible available in our language? The government of multiple countries and the Pope agreed that he should be executed. So he was strangled by an executioner, and then his body was burned publicly at the stake at the ripe old age of 42. However, the last words of this great man, what were they? Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That's his last words as he is being strangled to death. Now Tyndale didn't live to see that over the next decade, the king of England would indeed have his eyes at least partially opened, and he would indeed separate from the Roman Catholic Church, and he would bring the, the church in England into a period of reformation. This church that we are in right now, this church is a Baptist church. And our congregation has its roots in the particular Baptist tradition that began where and why? In England, because of this man's work and because of the reformation that took place because of when William Tyndale's prayer. Open the eyes of the king of England. And nobody would have blamed William Tyndale for going to his death and calling out the wickedness of the pope or the wickedness of the king. Look at the injustice, he could have said. Avenge me, God, he could have said. But instead, this man of God simply used his final words to pray for the very king who was having him killed. And in doing so, the people of God have experienced centuries of blessing. God desires all people without distinction to be saved. There is hope, therefore we pray. The fourth thing that we want to draw out from this text is the mediator of prayer. Look again with me now to verses 5 and 6, where it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now notice that this passage begins with a very pivotal and grounding word, the word for. It means that everything Paul had said so far is built off of this grounding truth, Without verses 5 and 6, there is no reason to pray. But because 5 and 6 are true, we have every reason to pray. Paul is making a spatial point here. He says there is one God, exclusive. He is here, and there is men over here, and there is one who is standing between them. According to this verse, God is inaccessible to you. You cannot gain his attention. You cannot get his favor in any way. That is except one. There is only one mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is a go-between, a negotiator, a conciliator, an intermediary, an arbiter, a moderator. It's someone who stands between two estranged or disconnected parties and makes communication possible. And the only one that could possibly be this mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. Now, this is vital to grasp. Jesus had to become one of us so that he could save ones like us. He had to become man in order to mediate for man. And Jesus is forever going to continue being fully God and fully man as one who has taken on our nature. And how is it that he mediates? What gives him the right to this middleman position because he gave himself as a ransom for all just as we have seen before all people without distinction are the undeserving recipients of god's grace just as the just ask the thief on the cross he had no right to enter into paradise what had he done he had done nothing of good everything in his life pointed to a deserving execution he had no good works on his record at all. He had no time to make restitution for his sins. All he could do is look at Jesus and ask, can I be forgiven and can I enter into your kingdom with you? And Jesus was the mediator at that point between this sinful man and one holy God. And Jesus, full of mercy, was happy to say, today you will be with me in paradise. And if you have not yet been saved. If you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, then I say to you, he stands today to be mediator for you. So repent and believe in Jesus. And just like that man on the cross, you too will be saved. But we should ask ourselves, this is good information, but what does it actually have to do with prayer? Why is Paul saying this right now? What's the point of dropping this theological truth bomb right into the middle of this passage about praying? The simple answer is this, Paul is clarifying that there is nobody that empowers or mediates or makes available our prayers to the Father except Jesus. We do not have another mediator in prayer. We do not go to Mary. We do not go to saints. There is not a man in a box that we confess to. The reason that Paul is hammering this point home right here in this letter is to remind us that there is absolutely nobody that can hinder your prayers except you. That's it. You and your sin are the only ones that are capable of hindering your prayer. Why? Because we have Jesus. Therefore, we can pray at all times, in all places, under all circumstances, and about anything. We are guaranteed an audience with a good Father who delights in hearing and answering our prayers. Because we have a perfect mediator, we have a guarantee that our prayers are never a a waste of time. Every single cry of the heart is carried to the throne of God with the exact same level of cosmic urgency. Why? Because Jesus is the one who mediates our prayers. The last thing I want to draw out here from this text is the call to prayer. Here I would like to combine two parallel calls given by Paul to pray. We already saw in verse 1, he says, "...I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people." That basically just means every type of prayer that you would pray, you can pray them for anyone. And he adds later in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now ladies, if you feel left out of that, please don't worry. Paul is going to speak of the women much more in the text that we'll cover next week. But his very next words are, likewise women. This is to indicate that Paul is not exclusively saying that men should pray. But instead, he highlights it for them, and then he adds women onto that afterwards. Why does Paul do that? Why does Paul make a distinction here about men and women praying? I don't know the answer to that, but I think I may have an answer. Um, I think the answer is probably that men are, by nature, problem solvers. I know, ladies, you're saying actually men are problem makers. But really consider this. When there's something broken and you have a group of men around, what do they do? How are, we going to, how are we going to fix that? What are we going to do there? And they begin pointing and drawing and planning and Home Depoting, And they, they figure out all the different ways that they're going to correct whatever this broken thing is. Especially older men. Young men, you need to watch these older men and figure out how to fix all these things that the older men know how to fix. I have also been in the room many times when bad news has been delivered. There are times when somebody dies or it's revealed that someone has cancer or when a church is in financial trouble or when a job is lost or when a car accident takes place or when a business has to close or when a college application is denied. I've been in those rooms, and most of the time I'm in them, I'm in them with men. And when that happens, rarely do I ever hear one of the guys say, you know what we need to do? We need to stop right now, and we need to pray. Instead, there's a tendency to start operating like worker ants seeking to produce some kind of a personal beneficial outcome. Let's just fix this thing. We've got, we got enough brain power in this room to make this happen. Let's just, let's just put our heads together and we can pull this out. Men, pray. By no means am I saying that we should not work. Rather, I'm echoing Paul's command that we begin in those moments by acknowledging God is sovereign over us. And God is the one who has the power to change this. God is the only one who can fix this situation. If God doesn't do it, Nothing I do is going to make any difference. So begin with prayer. Notice in particular that this is presented as not just personal prayer, but corporate prayer. He's not saying, okay guys, when you get bad news, pray in your prayer closet. Now there are times for that and there are commands for that. He states here that we should lift holy hands without arguing or quarreling. Now, we can talk for a long time about what that is and why that would take place. One side note of this is that when you are in a quarrel with somebody or an argument with somebody, the best thing to do is to pray with them. I can tell you that has, since I've learned that, has worked wonders for my marriage. When we have begun an argument or a disagreement, we just say we need to pause and we need to pray about this first. It causes you to be humbled before the other person. So he says, when you gather together, stop arguing, stop quarreling pray together and then i want you to notice that paul is commanding that we do this it means that you can't be alone if you're arguing or quarreling it necessitates other people he's not talking to schizophrenics he's saying you must gather wherever you are with people with the church or in your home or at the park or wherever you are together there you are to be a praying people So allow me to close with three final simple to learn but difficult to practice applications. First, pray together with your family. If you live with somebody, humble yourself by regularly acknowledging that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over your home. He's sovereign over your finances. He's sovereign over your job. He's sovereign over your education. He is sovereign. And humble yourself by praying to him for your needs. Bring your family together for times of prayer, both in good times and in hard times, and change up what you pray for so that you continually bring your family together before the Lord and it doesn't grow stale or old. Regardless of their age, bring your kids into the living room and practice this. If you have never prayed together, it may be awkward at first. In fact, I will tell you, It's going to be awkward. It's going to be weird. And the older your kids are, the longer they've gone without doing this, the more challenging this will be. But I promise you, it is of inestimable value. One way that I've decided to help my family grow in prayer this year is by praying for one person each week. Now, out there, if you have the Bible reading plan and you pick that up, you'll notice that each week has its own section. And every Sunday, we're taking a day off from the reading plan. So you can use that as a catch-up day every week. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, at the top of each one of those, write a name. I've already started that in my office. I've got a few of them filled in, and over the course of the year, each week, we're going to focus on one person. Sometimes that's going to be a family member who's lost. Sometimes that's going to be somebody within the church that needs a specific kind of prayer. Sometimes that will be for a missionary. Sometimes that will be for a politician. But it will always be for somebody that we can bring before the Lord. And that's just one idea of how you can do that together with your family. But pray together with them and be committed to it. The second application I'd like to share with you is to pray together with the church. This requires commitment. It requires time. So prioritize times of corporate prayer. When the church has a stay and pray on Sunday afternoons, just plan to remain a little longer after the church service on Sundays and pray together with the people of God. The next one that's coming up is on January 30th. If you'd like to circle that on your calendar, just plan to stay for an extra half hour or so after church so that we can bring things before the Lord in prayer. If you have little ones, if you have kiddos, I realize how challenging that can be, but start training them now. Bring them. We would love for them to be here, present, bowing the knee together with us in prayer. Starting up again on January 11th, we're going to have a prayer meeting in my office. It takes place every Tuesday at 1230, And what a joy it would be if we had to move that to another location of the church because it was just bursting from all the people who couldn't wait to pray. Also, every Sunday morning, Chris and Rita Kutugno have faithfully led a prayer meeting at 9.15. They pray in the room just over here. If you are interested in coming to that, come 45 minutes early and make your request known together with the people of Christ. And members in your community groups, that is one of the best places to let your heart be known to people. That's where you present your deepest prayer requests and your longest struggles. That should be the best place for us to uphold one another in corporate prayer. So let's pray together, church. Let's be a church that is marked and known for prayer. And lastly, I would ask that you pray for all people. I simply want to close by asking you again, is there somebody that you have not been praying for that you should? As we were communicating about that earlier, was there a name that the Lord impressed upon your heart or a face that you had in your mind's eye of somebody that you know that you should be praying for that you have not? Is there pride in your heart that's hindering you from asking the Lord to work in that person's life? And I ask you in all sincerity to humble yourself before the Lord and begin to prioritize that person in prayer. I know who that person is for me, that person that I should have been praying for that I have not. I would ask that the Father, our mediator Jesus Christ, Be pleased to answer these prayers by saving these people as we take them before him. Now let's close this time that we have together by taking all of these things, all of these commitments, all of these hopes, all of these applications, let's lay them now at the feet of Jesus in prayer. Father God, we ask you right now that you would help us. The very fact that we have poor prayer lives is evidence that we have weak faith and that we don't trust you as we should. It is evidence that we have failed to rely upon your strength, and we have thought in our ignorance and foolishness that we can do all of these things on our own. And God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would humble us. I pray that you would give us strength as we stand in faith and reliance upon the Son of God who has done all things for us and who has continually worked for our good. We pray that we would not lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways, we would prayerfully acknowledge you And that in doing so, that you would straighten our paths. God, we pray that today, if there is anyone in the room who is not a Christian, we pray that they would see the mediator, Jesus Christ. They would see the one who has come between. And that they would believe in him and be saved. May they acknowledge that he has died for sinners. And that he has risen for their justification. And Lord, we pray that today would be their day of salvation. Lord, in all of these things, we pray that you would be the worker and that we would be the unworthy recipients. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.